This is Partners in Practice, a weekly series dedicated to the evolving field of the advanced practice clinician. Here is your host nurse practitioner, Mimi Secor. Stress is at unprecedented high levels in our society today and associated with many serious health problems, including heart disease, depression, and obesity. A recent study found patients with heart disease were 40% less likely to laugh at everyday situations than those without heart disease. Laughter offers many benefits and may be the best medicine for both patients and clinicians. With me today is Dr. Norma Hannigan, nurse practitioner and assistant professor at Columbia University School of Nursing in New York City, and we're discussing the subject of laughter and its role in medicine today. Hello, Norma. Welcome to ReachMD. Hi, Mimi. It's great to be here. So how did you get involved in the study of laughter and its role in medicine, Norma? Well, you know, when I was growing up, I grew up in some unhappy family situations. What I discovered was that I was the person in my family who could make people laugh in in very unhappy times. That was sort of, you know, something that relieved the stress of family members. It dissipated stress for everybody, and I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. Because laughter is a lot about honesty, and it's about surprise. And the honesty helps people to say what they need to say and feel better. And the surprise really kind of helps to distract you from things that are bothersome. So I thought, hmm, well, if this works for me personally in my life, it probably will work for me as a clinician. And I started to to just, you know, review this and do some of the research on it, and I, I got hooked. Why do people laugh, Norma? What purpose does it serve? Well, there are several theories. Some people have written about the false alarm theory, where in the early days of humanity and, you know, back to the time that we were primates, if someone was approaching you and you didn't know if that person was friend or foe, you would bare your teeth. And once you realized that it was friend and not foe, the theory is, anyway, that a smile is like a relaxed teeth bearing. And so you could, you know, get to be friends with that person. And once you relax, there are fewer stress hormones flowing. So that seems to be one of the purposes. Another purpose that it might serve is that it's a socially acceptable way of expressing aggression and asserting one's own needs. You know that expression, many a truth is said in jest? Well, that has something to do with laughter. So what do clinicians fail to appreciate about laughter in the clinical setting? Well, I think sometimes that clinicians are worried that if they're laughing in a patient encounter that either the patient thinks that the clinician is laughing at them or that the patient doesn't feel taken seriously or that the healthcare provider is, you know, is being less than professional. The problem with that is that the beauty of laughter is that so many patients would prefer to have an alliance with their healthcare provider and be feeling much more free to talk about things that are sometimes very difficult to talk about in a healthcare encounter. And so that laughter relaxes the whole situation and allows people to say what they need to say when they might otherwise feel a little too uptight. So Norma, in healthcare settings then, what type of laughter is appropriate? Because I, I know clinicians are hesitant. What are some examples? I think sometimes when you are with a patient, if there's something that is potentially embarrassing that's about to go on. So, for example, you know, if I'm examining a young man for hernia, for example, that's usually, you know, when you're a teenager, that's the kind of a thing that you're not really into, for most kids anyway, most young men. 
And so I'll always say to them, you know, I realize that you think you will die of embarrassment, but I just want to assure you that no patient of mine has ever actually died. Most of my patients have left here, you know, pretty healthy. And that usually, you know, it gets a little chortle and people can relax. The patient can relax and you get on with your exam and it's sort of, you know, it's dissipated. That tension has dissipated. Or if you ask the patient the same question twice, for example, now, I'm not the only one who does that, right? Please tell me. <laughs> tell me that isn't so, oh, Mimi. <laughs> I'm right there with you, Norma. <laughs> so you might just say to the patient, oh, oh dear, I just asked you that, didn't I? And so it sort of it recognizes that you're not infallible, and you get to move on with your patient encounter. So in healthcare settings, on the other side of things, when is laughter inappropriate? Because we clinicians don't really learn this in school. And, you know, the truth is there isn't a whole lot of, you know, evidence-based literature out there about when laughter is appropriate and when it isn't. But what we kind of do know is that if the patient thinks it's inappropriate, then it's inappropriate. You know, if you make some quips or some little jokes in your encounter and you realize that the patient is just not responding appropriately, then you know you're skating on thin ice there. You know, some people can come in and tell you all about the embarrassing parts of their lives that you might need to know about in a healthcare encounter. They're readily able to use humor as a buffer, but sometimes people can't. And so you as the clinician need to recognize that and just say, you know, this is not a time when I want to introduce levity because the patient is not finding this at all an easy breezy kind of a situation. So I think we need to really take our cues from what the patient is telling us either verbally or non-verbally. How did the laughter movement get started, Norma? Well, there was a journalist named Norman Cousins. And he, back in, I think it was 1976, he became ill with ankylosing spondylitis. And he, you know, he was doing the regular hospital thing, and decided that he really wasn't getting any better. And he wrote a book called Anatomy of an Illness to recount his own self-healing and his journey through healthcare and his discovery of laughter. And so he talked to his physician, because that's who his healthcare provider was at the time, and he decided he was going to move out of the hospital, thought that was just a bad environment to be in, moved out of the hospital and moved into a hotel and got himself a bunch of funny movies. I think he was a particular fan of the Marx Brothers and would routinely watch these funny movies. He also was getting very high doses of vitamin C because he believed in different complementary and alternative medicine modalities. And what he discovered was that about 10 minutes of hearty laughter would enable him to sleep for about two hours. And eventually, he recovered from his illness. And apparently, this is something that often people don't recover from, and it can be extraordinarily painful. So he wrote about this health journey, if you will, and that got a lot of other people really interested in, you know, the science behind it. Was there real science behind it? And so a lot of folks started to investigate it. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Norma Hannigan, nurse practitioner and assistant professor at Columbia University in the School of Nursing in New York City, and we're discussing the subject of laughter and its role in medicine today. So why is laughter important to health, Norma? What are the benefits? Well, there are several physiological changes that take place. So one is that the heart rate increases, as it does with exercise, right? And everybody knows that exercise is good for you. 
So after your heart rate increases, when you're having a hearty laugh, it decreases to below baseline. And a a low resting heart rate is generally considered an indicator of good health. Same thing happens with respiration, that your respiratory rate increases while you're laughing, and then after you settle down, it can go back to below baseline. It increases blood flow to the periphery. That's why you get flushed when you're laughing, right? Increases the flow of endorphins. So endorphins are these opioid-like substances, and even the anticipation of laughter. So, for example, you make a date with your friends to go out on Friday night and it's Monday night. Your anticipation of that good time and those laughs that you're going to have a few days from now can begin to build up endorphins in your system. So endorphins are chemically related to opioids, as I said, and they, so they bind to the same receptor sites that relieve pain. When the endorphins are flowing and because you've been laughing, you either perceive pain as being less or, or perhaps completely absent. With the immune system, people produce more IgA that protects the gastrointestinal system. It increases free radical scavenging capacity. Did you even know you had that? I mean, I was just intrigued when I saw this stuff. It produces natural killer cells, and those help protect against cancers, increases T-cells, interferon. And some of these effects last up to 12 hours after the laughter episode. So we know laughter is a social phenomenon, right? And we know that people who have strong social ties tend to live longer and healthier lives. In regard to the endocrine system, laughter decreases cortisol, dopamine, and epinephrine, right? And those are all stress hormones. Muscle tightens when you're laughing, and then they relax. And that relaxation gives us a sense of well-being. So, Norma, this research, what does it tell us about the connection between laughter and illness? I know you've begun to discuss this. Do you want to expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So some of the better-known researchers, uh, one of them is Lee Burke and has written, done many studies with Stanley Tan and some other people at Loma Linda out in California. And they did a study with people who had had MIs. I don't remember exactly how many people, but some men and some women. It was a small group. And I should mention that the evidence base for laughter is, you know, These are not research studies that get lots of NIH money, for example, because we're still trying to convince people that laughter is worthwhile studying and that it really is a good thing. It's still a little anecdotal. So many of these studies are small. They're not the giant, you know, randomized controlled studies that we adore, but they're studies nonetheless. It is the evidence that we have. And so anyway, so they looked at this group of people who had had MIs, And what they discovered after a year of having these people do routine laughter interventions was that they lived longer, they were less prone to have a second heart attack, and they needed fewer medications than the control group did. This same team also, they also followed a group of people with diabetes over 12 months, and they found that they had lower levels of inflammation and higher HDL cholesterol after their laughter interventions. Michael Miller at the University of Maryland found out that people with heart disease are more likely to have less sense of humor. In other words, if you can't look at the everyday things in life that affect us with a sense of humor, you may be at greater risk for having heart disease. There's a nurse researcher in Japan 
who has looked at the effect of a laughter intervention on postprandial blood sugar in people with diabetes and showed that it was significantly lower in the intervention group. Now, again, that was only one intervention, so it's a limited study, but a study nonetheless. Another study showed that the genes responsible for natural killer cell production are increased in people with diabetes after laughter interventions. Which leads me to a question that I'm interested in. I know that you're currently involved in conducting a study on laughter and diabetes. Can you tell us a little bit about that study, Norma? Oh, sure. Mimi, I would love to. I thought you would never ask. With my colleague, uh, Dr. Arlene Smaldone here at Columbia, we're doing the DROLL study. <laughs> Get it? It's a funny the name. The DROLL study, yeah. The acronym stands for Diabetes, Relationship of Laughter on Living with Diabetes. We have three hypotheses that we're studying, we're looking to give some credence to. One is that people have fewer distress and depressive symptoms. So we've given our participants scales, depression and diabetes distress scales to fill out. We're looking at glycemic control. What will their A1Cs do? We want them to be lower, obviously, at the end of the study and that their physical activity and self-care behaviors will have improved by the end of three months. So the intervention is, now this is being done all with Spanish-speaking clients. The intervention is for these folks to watch a funny DVD at least 30 minutes a day, five times a week, and then report, they have to keep a diary, so they're going to report if, you know, did they laugh, was it mirthful laughter, did they watch it alone, or was it with someone, because we want to look at, is there some other effect of having that social piece of laughing with someone else. So each person wears a pedometer in the control and the intervention group, so we can look at physical activity. As we wrap up, do you have any sort of final comments you'd like to share about your research or about the subject of laughter? Well, I'd like to say that there is much more out there, and I would recommend that people look at the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor, and that's aath.org. Many healthcare professionals belong to that. The Humor Project in Saratoga Springs, they do a wonderful conference every year And it helps people look at not only how to work with their patients, but also to keep their own stress levels and their own health intact. Thank you very much, Norma, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking with you and such fun and a fascinating subject. Well, thank you, Mimi. It's been great. You've been listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD. You can download this program and any other program in our library at ReachMD.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.